Okay, Hebrews 6. That's where we are. Just a little bit of backstory before we stand and read. Bear in mind, you may have forgotten because it's been a couple weeks. In Hebrews 6, we find one of the sternest warnings in all the Bible. In short, the writer of Hebrews looks at his congregation, his audience, and he's teaching on the high priesthood of Melchizedek, which might make you be tempted to have your eyes glaze over. And he says, you know what, I'm going to stop. I can't keep teaching about this because you have become dull of hearing. Do you remember me teaching a few weeks ago on lazy listening? You have become lazy in your listening. And then he put a finer point on it, which our pastor preached on a couple weeks ago, and says, you may not even be saved. You, you are demonstrating such lethargy, such indifference. There, there's a chance you're, you're not real. But then in verse 9 of chapter 6, he abruptly shifts his tone yet again. Like a good shepherd, he comes back and realizes, I've come in pretty strong, but now I have a soft word because I trust there are a great many of you, if not most of you, who are sincere. Let's discern together if indeed you are, which we find in Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 9. If you found it, stand with me as we read together God's word. Hebrews 9, uh, 6, beginning in verse 9. Let me read now through verse 12. The author of Hebrew writes, Though we speak in this way, which by the way, that way he's talking about is that really critical, condemning way. Though we've been super critical in our warnings to you, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He clarifies, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, but as you still do. And see, we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the, underscore this phrase, full assurance of hope. I want you to let that word roll around in your mind. The full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Why don't you join me now as we pray? Let's ask God to help us. Father in heaven, I am asking now that you would come and that you would be our teacher, that you would speak in and through me in spite of me. And I am asking, oh God, that you would grant those in this room who need it, who should have it, grant us the gift of full assurance. Do this, I pray, for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Am I real? You ever found yourself asking that question? Am I real? Am I really a Christian? You ever found yourself just privately, quietly, warring within? Gosh, I, I don't know if I'm actually saved. I know a lot about the Lord. I've come to church regularly, but there's just this gnawing sense of uncertainty. By the way, if that's you, you're in good company. I've battled it all my life. I remember as a child, Christ saved me when I was 7 or 12, one of the two. I have a testimony that kind of splits both ways, so we'll find out one day. And I distinctly recall being confronted with the case study of Judas Iscariot. 
and realizing, well, if Judas could follow the Lord, could be in his close inner circle, one of the 12, and he was not real, what about me? Am I real? This escalated in my teenage years when sin that clings so near to all teenagers clung near to me. And I began to wonder, could I be real? Am I actually a Christian if I'm struggling with these things that I feel like I shouldn't? If this indwelling sin keeps making war with me and keeps finding victory in my life, am I real? And then it snowballed and it got worse when I went to college. I went to Bible school. I was studying to be a preacher. And I had all these friends in Bible classes studying to be pastors who began to fall away. I'm talking young men who went to college and paid an exorbitant amount of money to get trained as a pastor who decided to throw it away and decided that they didn't believe in the gospel of Jesus. I started to see friends that I knew that seemed to bear fruit in high school fall away, decide they didn't believe. And I thought, well, am I real? I mean, I feel like I'm one day away from throwing it all away. I know the sinful inclinations of my own heart. Is, am I real? And then as I went to seminary, and I was studying God's Word day after day after day. I was a full-time pastor while I was in seminary. Every minute I was in seminary, I was a full-time pastor. So I was paying to study the Bible, and I was being paid to study the Bible. I was in the Bible a lot, and every day I studied it, I kept getting confronted with the high cost of discipleship. That Jesus kept saying, there's going to be many on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, I knew you, and I'm going to look at you, the Lord says, and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And I kept finding myself thinking, what is that me? Am I real? Are you real? Have you been haunted by the question, are you really a Christian? The very notion of full assurance of salvation this sense from the Spirit that you know, that you know, that you know you're in Him, it feels, seems like it's unfeasible, like it's impossible. You perhaps struggle with this. The longer you live, the more you see people who professed faith fall away. Perhaps you have children that you raised in the church, who baptized in the church, who you knew and loved, and you saw what you thought was fruit and they're gone. Perhaps your very spouse was a believer when you met them. You thought, and they've since left the faith and you're just left reeling. You surely know, as I do, pastors, some prominent pastors in America who had what appeared to be most effective, fruitful ministries fall away and you're thinking, okay, so what do I do with this? I've been taught year after year after year that when God saves you, he saves you forever, that you're not going to lose this, that those who are in his hands are never going to slip out, but I don't have a category for that. The longer I live, the more I start wondering if full assurance of faith is even feasible. And the longer I learn, the more I study the Bible, I keep seeing all these crazy strong warnings, and I can't help but read Hebrews, well, for example, Hebrews 6. You feel that strong warning about whether or not you're actually real, and you're thinking, how could I ever know if I have Christ, could I ever have full assurance, and my word to you this Lord's day, is that based on the authority of Scripture, beginning in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, the answer to that question, is full assurance possible? The answer biblically is evidently yes. For interestingly enough, 
Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, it might be the most unsettling text in all the Bible on whether or not you can really know that you're a Christian, on whether or not you can lose your salvation. But strangely, gloriously, providentially enough, Hebrews 6, 9 through 12 might be the most settling text, the most certain text, the most encouraging text that will seal in your soul if you're His. It will help you answer the question that I hope haunts you this Lord's day, am I real? I want you to see, his point is plain, and I'll unpack it for you today. The point the writer makes, beginning in verse 9, is simply this. A saved life is a changed life. Now, me making that point may just double your trouble. Because you're thinking, Kyler, I get that, and that's why I'm at turmoil within. I know the Bible says that if God saves you, He changes you, and that's why I'm so concerned. Because I've seen evidences of change in the past, but then I see other species of sin in my life where I start wondering, was I ever really changed to begin with? You ever feel that way? There's certain seasons or days or weeks or months where the Lord is sweet and near and precious. And then there's seasons where you just feel so distant. You start wondering, am I real? Could this be me? Uh, Kyler, I was on fire, but now I've grown cold. Am I real? I, 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 I've been learning about him, but it seems like the more I learn about God, the more I learn about myself. And what I discover about myself is not a pretty picture. I keep seeing my sin all the more, which, by the way, the longer you walk with the Lord, just take it from somebody who's walked with the Lord for 20 years. The more you walk with the Lord, the more sinful you will see yourself to be. And you start wondering, could this be true? Am I real? It seems the more I grow in grace, the more I grow in grief over my own sin. And I start wondering, could I possibly, could I possibly, could I be real? The answer, biblically, is yes. For look, if you will, at verse 9. What does he say? Though we have spoken in this stark warning kind of a way, though I have scared you to death, so to speak, yet, oh, thank God for the word yet. What a conjunction. Yet, he's changing his tune here. Yet, beloved, beloved. It's the only time you find it in Hebrews. You find it some, I think it's like 60 times in the New Testament. It is always, always, always used for Christians. It is never used for an unbeliever. In fact, the first nine times it's used in the New Testament, it's the Father talking about the Son, Jesus. I mean, this is a word that is reserved for people that have been changed by God. Christians, he is talking to believers here, and he says, though I've spoken in a really harsh way to you, beloved Christian I have seen something in you that tells me you're real. In fact, he says this, I feel sure that there is something about you that proves to me you're a Christian. I see something in you, and I want to show you today what I see as two, broadly speaking, vital signs of new life in Christ. What are the two things the writer of Hebrews sees? This past week, I made a hospital visit to an emergency room. And while I stood in CMC Maine's emergency room, which was quite a bustling place. Thank God for the doctors and nurses that serve on those front lines. As I stood in that ER, I saw triage nurses and whoever else was involved taking vital signs. You know what a vital sign is. It's those key indicators like your pulse and like your body temperature. These key indicators that are telling you 
Well, if you're alive and how alive you are, if you really are going to be okay or if you're in a jam and we need to get you into an emergency room real quickly. These vital signs, I want you to notice with me, these aren't all the signs of life, but they're vital. If these are missing, you're in a jam. If these are missing, you ought not have assurance. If these are missing, you should heed the warning of Hebrews 6. It's not the totality of the faith. It's a vital sign. So let's mark the first vital sign together. Number one, I want you to notice that a saved life is a changed life that's evident to other people. It's going to be evident somehow, some way to others. Now, let's just stop for a second. Part of us gets that. Who in this room doesn't know the stench of hypocrisy? You know it. You could sniff it out. You teenagers in the room are better at sniffing it out than anybody else. You know that there is just something about feigned, inauthentic faith that just rubs you the wrong way. You can spot it. You know something's askew. You've probably had somebody close in your life, a family member who pretended to be a Christian, but their life just didn't demonstrate it at all, and it caused you to question whether or not the gospel is true. I want you to see that the first vital sign, as we see in verses 9 and 10, is that a, changed, a saved life is going to be a changed life that is in some way evident to others. Notice in verse 9, he says, I feel sure about this. Here's what that means. I feel confident. I feel persuaded. I am persuaded by the evidence that you are saved, that you are in Christ. I see something in you. What does he call that something? He calls it better things, which is not altogether clear. So then he defines it. What I notice in you, what I'm sure about is I see better things, things that belong to salvation, which is a strange way of saying things that accompany salvation, things that a saved person would demonstrate, things that are evident of God's grace in your life. Let's just put it in layman's terms. He is basically saying, hey, I, I know you just heard that start stern warning, but I am sure, I'm confident, I am persuaded that there is evidence in your life that you are real, that God has saved you. So what is that evidence? What are those vital signs? What are the things he says that belong to salvation? I want you to notice with me that what he says is not what you would expect. What you might expect, what are the things you're looking for in maybe your child to discern whether or not God saved them? Maybe you would expect, you know, like a new look. He's going to change the way he's been dressing like he hates the Lord and he, you know, he does terrible things. And I would expect him to look different. Maybe he's going to look the part like everybody else in church. And that is not where the, he goes. Far be it. You might expect, okay, well, he's going to live completely different. There's just going to be this whole new lifestyle about him. He's going to adopt my respectable lifestyle. He's going to behave exactly the way I would behave in every scenario. And then, of course, they never do. And then you start wondering. Or maybe you're thinking new language. He's had a salty mouth, and at last he's going to change that. All of that's going to be changed overnight, and you're not going to see that. You want to know what he points out? This is a miraculous work of the Spirit. He says it's not going to be a new look or a new language or a new lifestyle that you see immediately. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a new love. Here's the first evidence. The first evidence, the first vital sign that you are in Christ is that it's going to be evident to others by who you now love. Mark that down with me. Who you now love. This vital sign in verse 10 says, for God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name. I want you to slowly walk through that verse with me. He says, God is not unjust. That's a double negative. Let's make it positive. God is a just God. And since God is a just God, God as a just God, He would never look at an evidence of grace in your life, something that only He could do in your life. He would never allow that to happen and then let you slip away. If there is an evidence of God's grace working in your life, He is going to honor that. He is going to save you. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. God is a just God, and He is going to change something within you. Now notice what He says next. He's not going to overlook your work. Now that looks a little weird, does it not? You who know the gospel know that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And you're thinking, well, it seems like God is saying, since he's just, he'll save you because you've done good things. Far from it. I want you to notice this. He is talking about evidence of his work in you. He is saying, I am not going to overlook something I have done in you. I have created a miracle within you. I have caused you to have a new love. And he calls it this love you have shown for my name. Let's talk about this new love that God does in our hearts. Do you realize every last one of you in this room, if you are in Christ, you have had a miracle happen within you. You have had what you could call a Copernican revolution in your soul. You remember in science class, there was that famed man named Nicholas Copernicus who discovered in the 1500s that the world, the universe did not, or the solar system, I should say, did not revolve around the earth. It actually revolved around what? The sun. It's called the heliocentric model. He changed it from the earth to the sun and everybody freaked out because they thought we were the center of the world. And that's actually true for all of us. All of us are born naturally with everything circling around us. We are naturally self-serving. We love the big number one, ourselves. We are consumed with self-love. The essence of sin is loving ourselves and not God who made us. But something happened. When God saved you, He changed you. He changed you in such a way that it would be evident to others that you now love somebody different. You have had a Copernican revolution. You're no longer the center of your universe. There is now another at the center of your universe. There is God. Pre-conversion, it was all about you. Post-conversion, you can't help but want to center your life around the Lord. You have what he calls a new love. So I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to admonish you. This Lord's Day, check your pulse. Is your heart beating for Him? Have you detected in your life, faint as the pulse may be, have you detected in your life a heart that beats imperfectly as it may for God? You who once loved yourself and wanted your sin, you wanted what you wanted, what you wanted, you are now convicted of that, and you want your life to center on God, even though you imperfectly, you don't even know how to do it half the time, but you love Him, you have a new love, check your pulse. Is your heart beating for God? But any doctor in this room, by the way, I'm not. I may technically be a doctor, but I'm not the kind that can help anybody. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I think I know this. Having a pulse merely is not enough. You can have a pulse too slow or a pulse too quick. There is a healthy pulse rate 
Now, I want to invite you today to not just check your pulse to see if you have a heart beating for God. Check with me now your pulse rate. I want you to see, is your pulse for God too slow? Because your pulse matters, and he defines it in this verse. He shows us, okay, you say you love God. Now let me see if you really do. You're, you're claiming, Kyler, you have a pulse. But I'm going to test it to see if your love is actually a love for his name. What does he say in verse 10? He says, as you, uh, your love that you have shown for his name, what's he say next? In serving the saints. Man, that is a tough word. Because of all the vital signs, of all the evidences of grace, the writer of Hebrews could have drawn to our attention. What's the vital sign he draws to our mind and heart? He says, I'll show you if you're real. Do you love God? And is your love for God demonstrated in the way you love other people? You know, there's a lot of people who claim to love God and don't. You see, love of other things can masquerade as love of God. Sin lives in a costume. It's hard to recognize sometimes. For some of you today, your love of gossip can masquerade as a love of prayer. Your love of power can masquerade as a love of servant leadership. Your love of attention can masquerade as a love of serving other people. Your love of acceptance can masquerade as a love of biblical, gospel-centered community. Your love of feeling something, just kind of getting, getting the feels in this room, can masquerade as a love of worship. Just let this be a sign. Do you feel more moved by music than you do by the word proclaimed? That ought to just be a little red flag to you. For this is God speaking to you. Most songs we sing are not God speaking to you. They're words written by men. Is your heart not burning within you as the word is proclaimed? Then ask, oh God, why do I feel so moved when the song gets loud and I don't feel moved when I am sitting under your word proclaimed? It should cause a fire in my bones. You know, sometimes your love of knowledge, just knowing more than other people, it can masquerade as a love of the Bible. Of the word. And I want you to see from this text that a healthy heart, a healthy pulse rate, a healthy heart for God, it beats with love for others in serving the saints, is what he says. That's where the word in the original language is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. You are serving other people. And he says you do this consistently. It's not like you did it before. You're like, Kyler, I served in VBS last year. I clearly love God by serving other people. And he is saying this is a part of your life. It's as you still do. Day in, day out, your love for God is manifested in how you love other people. And just bear in mind that one of the great apologetics we have, it's not the only one, and it's not even the best one, but one great apologetic we have as believers is love. Your love for other people is a powerful apologetic, not just to Christ, but to Christ's redeeming work within you. There's a reason the Apostle John said in, verse, in chapter 13 and verse 35 that everyone will know you are disciples if you love one another. There's a reason John in 1 John 4 beginning in verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anybody who does not love does not know him because God is love. Those are stern, stark words. 
So let me just put a finer point on this and say how you love other people may in fact reveal how you really love God. If anyone says, I love God, John tells us, and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Oh, my friends, how you love other people very well may reveal how you love your Lord. And you could say conversely, how you love your Lord is going to reveal how you love other people. So I don't want you to put the cart before the horse. If you want to love people well, don't give up on loving God. That's, that's one of the most dangerous suicidal things you can do. If you want to love people well, if you want to learn to serve the saints, you've got to pursue loving God. You put the horse first, and if you love him the way he has called you to love him, if you learn about him the way he has called you to learn about him, if you indeed love his name, you will demonstrate it through the way you love other people. The first vital sign of a changed life is that other people are going to notice this, both by who you love and by how you love. First vital sign. But may I give one second and final one to you today. For a second vital sign is not just other people noticing a change in you. I want you to see secondly that a saved life is a changed life that's going to be evident not just to others but to you. Secondly, it's going to be evident to you. Some of you in this room are thinking, Kyler, you don't know me. I'm a good actor. I play the part pretty well. I am not bad at masquerading. I look the part. In fact, a lot of people in this room might think I really love God and love other people. I, I look it. But I know my heart. I know my guilt. I know my shame. I know what I've looked at. I know what I've said. I know what I've done. I know, consequently, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm real. Am I? Can I be? Possibly. And his words to you, beginning in verse 11, let these be a word of encouragement and of exhortation to you. Beginning in verse 11, he says, I desire something to happen in you. I desire, we desire all of you to show something, to manifest something, to demonstrate something. Let me put this in my own words. He's saying, don't presume upon the riches of God's kindness. I want you to see that if you are saved, there is going to be noticeable change that you're going to feel, not just others. You're going to know this. I don't want you to presume, oh, I'm saved, I'm good, I can live as I want and go to glory. He is saying, I desire that you show a few things. You need to, here's the biblical theological word we use often, if you are in Christ, you must persevere. You must live a changed life. I think a better way to make my statement is not that a saved life is a changed life. I think it might be more theologically accurate for me to say a saved life is a changing life. For you may say, God changed me and I'm different now, but I've been pretty stagnant for the last 20 years. There is no assurance biblically for you. You must be somebody who is slowly but surely being changed into the image of Christ day after day after day. That's what we call sanctification. You're being transformed. So, okay, what should I look for? What do I need to do? The first thing I want you to notice is it should be evident to you by how you are growing. 
Notice, if you will, in verse 11, he says, we desire all of you to show the same earnestness. Earnestness, it means diligence or eagerness. It's the opposite of being lazy or sluggish, which he actually uses that word at the beginning of verse 12. It's not being lazy. In other words, he's basically saying, if you want to know that you know, you need to fight the fight of faith. You need to be in the fight of faith every day. Do you know that? Do you realize the Christian life is a life of war? If you are not actively battling the enemy this moment, then you are in all likelihood asleep in the battle. You are armorless. If you feel the burden of sin, if you feel the twinge of conviction, if you know that there is a war within you, that is, my friends, a sign of life. That means you are alive. It means you're not asleep. It means you're not numb. It means you know that there is a war. So take heart. A, sinner, a Christian is not somebody who is not fighting. It's not somebody who's sinless. It is somebody who recognizes they're a sinner and is in the fight, is eager, is earnest, is pursuing perseverance, is fighting the fight of faith. Firstly, I want you to see, you're going to notice a growth, a pattern of change in your life. There's a great book out there by Don Whitney entitled like, I didn't write the title down, but it's like 10 indicators to check up on your spiritual life. Just Don Whitney, type in the number 10 and you'll probably find it. In this book, he gives 10 good questions you should ask yourself to determine whether or not you're growing. Let me just read these off to you. Uh, We can put them online. You don't have to mark them all down. Let me just read them to you. One question you ought to be asking yourself is, do I thirst for God? Do I actually want Him, or am I satisfied with other things and don't really have any hunger or thirst for Him? A second question is, am I being governed increasingly by His Word? Is the Bible changing me, or is the Bible just kind of an interesting ancient artifact? A third question is, am I loving more? Do I find myself growing more gracious, merciful, compassionate, loving towards other people, or am I getting harder and heart towards them? A fourth question is, am I more sensitive to God's presence? Or do I still live like he's not real, functionally speaking? A fifth question is, am I growing in my concern for the needs of others? Or am I still all consumed with myself? That might be an indication that you have not had a Copernican revolution in your heart, by the way. A sixth question is, am I delighting in his church? Do I find this life-giving? Or do I find this as a box checked, a necessity? A strange one at that. Are spiritual disciplines growing in importance to me? Or am I just kind of like, you know, I do it from time to time, but I don't really need it. Do I grieve my sin? That's another question. Or am I indifferent towards my sin? Am I growing quicker in my forgiveness? Or am I still holding on to grudges and I don't feel too bad about it? Do I yearn for heaven? Or do I really want heaven on earth? Just a few questions you ought to ask your heart to discern. Am I growing? The first or the second vital sign I want you to see is it's going to be evident not just to other people. It's going to be evident to you by how you are growing. But as we conclude, I must draw your attention to verse 12. For a second indicator within of new life is not just whether or not you're growing... But I want you to see, this is the, I wouldn't have pieced it out this way, but this is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. He gives us a second layer to this. It's not going to just be evident to you by how you're growing. It's going to be evident to you by who you are following. Notice, if you will, verse 12. Be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, 
inherit the promises. Boys and girls, young men and women, students in this room, I want you to hear me. I'm probably going to say something to the effect your mom and dad have said before. Take this from somebody who knows it by experience. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You are the people you surround yourself with. Have you learned that by experience that you end up becoming so much like those you follow? It's true. None of us are mature enough to escape it. Given enough time, you are going to end up conforming to one degree or another around those who you are following. And so my plea with you is that you would hear the call of Christ in verse 12 to consider who you're following. As a freshman in high school, I went to a Christian school. I was an athlete. I was pretty you know, well-known and liked in my school. I liked girls. I, you know, I liked attention. I, I was a typical freshman in high school. And I'll never forget, one day, I have no other explanation for this, but one day I had a moment in my time with the Lord. I had been reading through the Bible uh, at that point in my life yearly, and I had this moment where I realized I was becoming like my friends who were not worth following. I love these brothers, they're, they're friends. But I was not liking what I was becoming. And I had this moment, I wasn't looking at this text, but I had this moment where I realized I've got to consider who I'm imitating. Who am I following? Who do I want to be like? And in that moment, do you want to know who I decided I wanted to be like? I wanted to be like the 50, 60, and 70-year-old pastors at my church at the time in Oklahoma City. Men who were all my father's age or older. I saw their faith. I wanted to imitate it. I wanted to be like them. I may not wanted to have dressed like them, but I wanted to be like them. And so I started to follow them. And guys, it was one of the greatest temporal decisions I've ever made. For when I did that, everything in my life began to change. Now some may say it made you an old soul, and, and that might be true. But it did change me. It caused me to value the things they value, to have a greater perspective. I began to imitate their faith and their patience, their long-suffering, their willingness to count the cost, take up the cross, and follow Him. And my plea to you is that you would do the same, that you would imitate, you would find those who are worthy of being followed. You would do as the Apostle Paul says, and you need to follow me as I imitate the Lord, that you would be somebody worth being followed, that you would make it your resolve this year to be a husband, a father, a friend who is worth being followed. May your faith and patience be worthy of imitation. Next week we're going to come back to the end of this chapter and we're going to see in particular the faith and example of Abraham who is quite an example but I'm not going to steal that sermon. Clint will have that next week. Let's just conclude our time this Lord's Day by bringing it back home and I want you to consider with me. Are you real? Are you? Are there vital signs of life in you? You see, a saved life is a changed life. It's changed. It's going to be evident to other people, both by who you love and how you love. Do you love the Lord? Do you? Have you had that Copernican revolution in your heart? And is it demonstrating itself in the way you are growing in your love for others? Is it evident to other people? And lastly, is it even evident to you by how you're growing? Can you discern patterns of growth within you? 
by who you're following? Do you find yourself wanting to imitate, to follow those who know, love, trust, and humbly follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, my friends, would you give yourself in prayer this Lord's day to this clarion question of the hour. May it haunt you, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus, may it fill you with unshakable hope, what he calls for full assurance. Am I real? Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, I invite you to just quietly consider that question yet again. Am I real? And be careful, lest you look merely to outward acts and find your assurance there. If this moment you are warring with that question, that very well may be an indicator that you are in Him. For somebody outside of Christ wouldn't be bothered by that very question. They'd be indifferent towards it. The sheer fact that you're wrestling with the question, am I real, may be the gracious sign that God is in you. My plea to you is if you're wrestling with that question, do not resolve to just change things to kind of prove to everybody else you're real. This moment, if you are warring with the question, I want to plead with you to prayerfully look to Jesus and in that moment say, Jesus, this moment, not 20 years ago, today, I believe you are who you say you are. You did what you said you did. You, God, are my only hope. I am trusting you this moment. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth He is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be indeed are saved. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do this miraculous work of full assurance in the hearts of those who should have it. And for those who do not have it, I pray that this moment you would open their eyes to behold you, the risen Christ. Would they turn from their sins, believe on you, and be saved. Praise you, O God that we can have the gift of full assurance. What a wonderful, encouraging, pastoral word inspired by your spirit to we, your people. Fill this room with that encouragement now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we stand and sing, let's cry out with full assurance of faith.